awfully difficult to talk into your phone and have anything meaningful happen. Artificial intelligence and natural language processing in particular have made some pretty large leaps in the last decade. And Dr. Catherine Havasi is on us uh, is on the call this week uh, to articulate uh, why and how. Catherine uh, began her undergrad at MIT, did her master's there, got her PhD at Rutgers, um, and for the last 17 years has been working on a project called ConceptNet, uh, which is intended to be a common sense lexicon for machines that she's been again working on for quite some time. Open source and also runs and has been running a company called Luminoso for the last five years focusing on helping businesses make sense of their text data and use that, uh, use those tangible insights to improve business processes, particularly right now they're focused on uh, customer service and feedback types of concerns. So we talked today about not only how natural language processing used to work uh, before the machine learning and quote unquote deep learning uh, phase, but how machine learning, deep learning, and the influx of attention on AI have helped to transform uh, how prevalent these technologies now are and how much more we can do with them and how companies are using them in real time. So some of you who have an interest in AI and industry, I think will enjoy this episode as well. So without further ado, we'll roll right in. All right, so uh, Catherine, the, the question I'd like to hone in on first here is, uh, you know, NLP has been around for quite some time. Having machines make sense of text probably going on since before our births um, what, are, what are sort of the, some of the traditional approaches to NLP, natural language processing? Well, I think when NLP started, um, there was really a an idea that um, we could look for these patterns in text. Uh, we tend to use the same types of ways of expressing different ideas. We use the same phrasing of how a sentence works, the same semantics, and sometimes we use the same word meanings as well. And I think early NLP was really about finding that. It was really about, can we find these patterns in language explicitly? Uh, and so the, in this in this category, there were these, these systems that were made up of basically large encyclopedias of rules. And these are called a rule-based system. And so you would build these rules and it would say, well, if the sentence contains the word uh, sick, then it goes in the bad category. Oh, but if it contains the word sick and it contains the word physician, maybe it goes in the neutral category of whether or not it's positive or negative. And from there, we sort of went from rule-based systems to uh, something a little bit more complex where people would build these things called ontologies or taxonomies and they would spend countless hours uh, actually building out these sort of scaffolds to help the com to help the computer understand the relationship between, say, bread and grain or phones and cameras and things like that. And when you went into a new area or you went into a new company to do natural language processing, you would have to start from scratch and you would have to say, well, in this world, what things are related to what things in what ways? And it was essentially like taking your knowledge and adding it into the computer so the computer has a good way of, of starting out. And in the beginning, and up until very recently, a lot of commercial NLP was still there. It was still looking at these rules and these taxonomies and saying, we're going to have to build these by hand for each company that starts working with NLP. Mm -hmm. Now, before we even go into future approaches, this is piquing my interest here. I mean, I think the general transition in AI has sort of been, um, I know there's expert systems being used fruitfully in industry today. I think the general shift has been away from that. It feels as though we just can't get to what reality is when we're trying to build it with Lego bricks. No matter how small the Lego bricks are, uh, you know, we're, we're never really touching reality because this isn't, it's not actual experience. It's just sort of this, this, uh, it's always some level of abstraction that, that has 
you know, this, uh, this arbitrary break from what's real. Um, with that being said, and knowing that those were limitations, where was older NLP used with these, these very sort of uh, what we might call coarse methods of, of just rule-based systems and taxonomies? I mean, I think in a lot of different places. I mean, and, and it's still used there today, and there are companies that have uh, a lot very big rule-based systems still that, you know, and, and especially for things like, you know, when you, type a, when you type a question into a search engine, you know, where are the boundaries between the words if you're using a language that's, that's something like Korean or Arabic that doesn't necessarily put spaces in, you know, um, and all that kind of stuff. Some of that is still, still older technology that runs on that kind of, of system. And I think one of the things that made it very difficult to make the transition out of that in the commercial space is that there's a lot of things we know about the world that we take for granted and we never write down that computers don't know. And so you would either need truly big data, web scale data, or other sorts of things to be able to grab and learn that information. So I think before the type of methods we had now, it was very difficult to say, if we let this go by itself, it's going to learn the right things. It's going to actually figure out what's going on. It might, it might learn that these things frustrate someone. It might learn that these things anger somebody, but it might never learn that anger and frustration are related to each other. Uh, and so you, you're, you mentioned uh, search engines, Korean languages that don't involve spaces. Um, where, where are some other areas where this kind of NLP, like right now, somewhere right now. in a company is cranking away, you know, yeah. like, like, is this, when I call a call center, are they still Absolutely. using that? <laughs> I think that right now what we're seeing is a huge transition away from that in yes. of customer service, but that's only been in the last year to six months. I think with the, a lot of people are still using it for that. They use it for survey processing. So, you know, if you, if you flew on a uh, airline and they send you a survey afterwards, uh, up until very recently, you know, almost all of the, a lot of the survey processing being done was being done with this kind of system. It's like, well, which bucket does this go in? Let's use a rule, uh, that kind of stuff. And it was, it was, it was primarily used all over. And this was a huge problem because if you're in a marketing agency or if you're, um, a consumer goods company, you have so many different products. You can't build these things for each thing that you've got, right? You can't build, you can't build something that, you know, for every type of chocolate bar you have knows how to put things in the buckets. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So again, like you mentioned with the taxonomies, you go into mm -hmm. a new space, you got to build an entire new universe of rules and connections. And then the same thing with rule-based system, you know, for this kind of flight under this kind of circumstance, you know, um, here's what we're going to ask folks. Uh, you know, but how many of those circumstances do you really want to, you know, have to kind of custom code what sentiment exactly. means, the relation between words? Okay, got it. Absolutely. So it, recently, um, and so some of those systems are still in place. You mentioned survey processing, you know, potentially some call center stuff. Um, there's issues, but it served a function. There was utility, probably similar technologies being used for decades. Now there's a shift away from that. Where is the shift towards? So taxonomies, rule-based systems, now into what? So a while ago in, in sort of uh, non, in, in sort of academic circles, uh, people started shifting away from this kind of system and going towards a more machine learning based system. But I think there were a couple of different reasons why that were, that were um, functionality reasons why this didn't get adopted as quickly in, in the business area. And I think one of them was that you sort of removed the need for rules and you replaced it with the need for training these systems. And you also, a lot of people could make rules for a system and it was a lot harder to get the data you needed to train 
a machine learning system. And that was true until recently. I think the amount of the way companies treated data and the way companies access data has changed dramatically over the past six years. And on the flip side of that, the way the comfort level that people have with artificial intelligence has changed dramatically even in the past couple of years, which is interesting. You know, when I started, when we started this in 2010, um, I remember sort of message testing at a marketing event in, in Boston for Luminoso. And if I walked up to someone and gave a pitch for Luminoso that involved anything to do with natural language processing or artificial intelligence, boom, lack of interest. Everybody yeah. would walk away. And, and now, you know, people, people listen to you talk about customer care for about five minutes and they'll ask, is this deep learning? <laughs> yeah. And it's just so different. It's, it's such a, it's a, such a sea change in what the comfort level is in being able to put this kind of artificial intelligence in play and analytics in place in business. It's, it's certainly a more fashionable term today. Um, and, and more, more folks are going to, I mean, even if they don't have the vaguest clue as to what deep learning is, which is fine. They'll at least want to be hip enough to reference it. If you're yes. talking about, if you're talking about artificial intelligence, this is sort of where, where we are in, in the, uh, in the hype cycle of, of AI. Yeah. Um, it's the same so for big data before everybody had big data. Yep. 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 Uh, so, okay. Curious. So, so now we're seeing this influx of attention. We're seeing machine learning applied to this domain. You mentioned part of the, the trepidation for companies to apply machine learning to, let's say, their airline survey at Southwest, as opposed to some kind of rule-based system as to what bucket does this go in, what does this mean about this person's experience, um, was that, n number one, well, any, any kind of change is always difficult, but the difficulty was, instead of all the arduousness of building the systems, which sort of had been done, so maybe that friction on some level wasn't felt, especially in the areas where it could continuously run smoothly. But now there was a new friction, which is, man, we gotta, we gotta build it, and then we have to take all this time and train it. Um, however, uh, people are getting over that. This, this area has become more exciting. It, yes, yes, and now, of course, people are collecting so much more information that it's, it's, more, uh, it's feasible to train it. Even if you're not you know, uh, Southwest, there's ways that you can garner enough information to train a machine learning program, depending on what you're doing. Um, what does it look like to train a machine learning program around natural language processing? Um, like, give, give me a kind of a tangible step-by-step -step example of, of maybe somewhere where this could be used, maybe somewhere where you've seen it used yourself, where someone's had to get a system to get to the results uh, that they were looking for. And, and, and what was that process like? How long did that take? Sure. I mean, I think that's even been changing a lot in the last year to six months. And so we can talk about sure. sort of sure. the way statistical systems work and, and sort of the way uh, more modern systems work. I think one thing that's really interesting is we saw a lot of different uh, interfaces where initially you would come in, you would take a look at all the documents um, that say, let's say you're a, a contact center and you're getting calls in about a candy product. Uh, actually, I used candy as an example before, so chewing gum here uh, to be very <laughs> um, uh, And you know, you're, what, what the what the folks in the contact center are doing is they're doing something called um, basically hand tagging. So when a document, when you know a call comes in or when a question comes in, they'll say, "Oh, this is about flavor suggestion and mint." Um, and they'll put those two things in there. And then when you get all that data tagged, you can take it back to the system and say, what can we learn from all the things that have been tagged that way? How can we generalize? So when a new thing comes in, we can, you know, say, is this about a flavor suggestion or is this not about a flavor suggestion? Um, which, you know, 
was a definite improvement, but, you know, for some reason didn't really take off as much in the market. Uh, a lot of work went into it. It was a little complicated and it was, you know, artificial intelligence. Um, and, and so that didn't take off nearly as much. And, you know, some of the companies that were doing that kind of stuff after they took off had non-technical, non-product problems that were, that were rather um, well-known. And, you know, that didn't, that didn't make people make the switch. I think, huh, so was this too much effort for the supervised element, Catherine? Just to be clear a, for the audience. Lot of a supervised, there was a lot of supervised machine learning, and the supervised element was either a pain or there was a difficulty because if you didn't know what you were looking for and you didn't know what you were tagging, you were never going to find it because it would never find things that you didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah Never yeah. found those unknown unknowns, to not coin a phrase there. I interesting. So so part of the, the, the holdback here is that um, when going into this process, just like with a rule-based system, you have yep. to kind of build it all. So they're they're going to say, "All right, well, here's delta, right? You're not getting enough of a difference." And it... yeah, like they're just saying what they think they already know, and then putting it into a machine learning program with what they think they can, in a supervisory way, yeah. uh, you know, embed into the information, and maybe they're learning just about as much as if they just built the pachinko machine of a rule-based system, and it's not not a big enough jump. Right. And I think sort of the how things ended up changing very quickly was we had a couple of different things come out uh, very publicly uh, very quickly that got a lot of attention um, probably the biggest thing here was was Watson obviously on jeopardy you know yeah. I think that changed uh, that was sort of a huge moment for artificial intelligence and for the average person who you know maybe hadn't thought about AI since the AI winter and didn't think of Google as AI it sort of changed the perspective of where AI, is and whether or not it could be useful for something like even business because you know IBM certainly went out and did this thing to win on Jeopardy but they also spent a good deal of time afterwards explaining how something that could win on Jeopardy could also help your business yes. and I think that specifically was part of and sort of gave the entire market permission to say look these things we've been secretly doing they're also AI you know, I think most people out there don't really, didn't really think about Google as artificial intelligence in any way or um, when they searched, for example. I think that for a long time, sort of after at the era of expert systems, people didn't want to talk about the AI and what they did. And I think that changed. And the other thing that changed is the kind of methods that we're seeing with Google and with, with other things allowed there to be a lot more of an unsupervised component that was actually quite smart and quite savvy and able to customize to domains. Um, I think one, yeah, so, yeah. so we can maybe get a little bit into that too. And, and for the readers out there, you're getting a, a nice little bonus session of AI uh, pop culture trends here. So we're starting <laughs> to see, see how this we affects talk about that. We can talk real, real, real company, yeah. real, real company founders like yourself sort of you know, you're talking to people day and night about, you know, your software, the industry in general, or your, your, your company, the, the industry in general. And um, you're, you know, you're getting to see the sea change of how generally people are talking at, you know, tech events, um, industry events, whatever the case may be. It's very interesting to hear you mirror. Yeah. I think a lot of what us feel intuitively, you know, just look at like TechCrunch's coverage over the last, you know, X, you know, whatever they started up. Um, where where sort of the wave is there or any of the other big publishers there's kind of this sense but it's interesting to hear it reiterated from you and what you were just getting into Catherine um I think was going to be the unsupervised side of things where we're we're not manually sitting there and tagging you know uh 40,000 phone calls about um you know mint flavor or something for Wrigley's um 
we're, we're having a machine that's making sense of the information by itself in, in the NLP context. How is that even possible for us laypersons to understand? Right. So I think if we think back, we, there was sort of a point where um, I think people went back and said, well, how much can we understand about how people learn language? And can we bring some of those insights back into the way computers learn language? Uh, this in the, you know, and this type of machine learning gets called often uh, deep learning, but it's actually, it's not always deep. It's sort of, <laughs> it's frequently sort of like ankle deep learning. Uh, you know, the stuff that's happening in images and videos is deep learning, but it's unclear that that's actually the best match for language as much as, you know, Google's system is one of those systems I would consider ankle, ankle deep learning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, for example, but you know, the real insight here is, is that you can build these representations um, of how words relate to other words and then do reasoning over them um, in various different ways. And a lot of it's based on, you know, essentially how people think and how people learn new words. Yes, it's r roughly sort of neurologically based. I think um, Patrick Winston at, at MIT, and I'm not sure if he's he's there anymore, actually. But um, okay, great, fantastic, uh, great guy. Um, he uses the I think naive biological mimicry, right? I mean, in terms of what we know of cognitive science, what we know of how sense is made, you know, in our own skulls. Um, this is what you're referring to with deep and ankle deep um, learning. In, in the context of language, um, what, is, what does that look like? We're sending enough sentences, enough sound bites, whatever it might be, through a series of neural networks. Um, how, how are those connections then sort of being made without the instructions being put in in the first place? And how does that work in, in sort of real time in, in, a, in a real environment? So I think one of the things that we need to think about is how do we learn new words, right? And so how we learn new words, when we run into something we don't know what it is at all, we sort of make two basic, use two basic tools to try to say, well, this is how we understand something. Um, can we make that a little bit more concrete? And one of them is sort of context and similarity. You know, we can, if you've never seen a word before and you don't know what it means, you look at the rest of the sentence and you make an educated guess, right? And so how much of that kind of reasoning power can we encapsulate and can we build machine learning that mimics it? And at the same time, we sort of make these analogies, right? You know, well, maybe if we had never seen a kitten before, we could look at a kitten very quickly and say it kind of looks like a puppy and start using, you know, and start using that kind of working analogy to understand kittens more until, you know, you learn more about kittens. Uh, and that's how we learn words. And so if we can start mimicking that kind of, of similarity and analogy-based reasoning in the way language works, we can start letting it go and start letting it learn new things about the world uh, without a person needing to explicitly tell it. Um, what I do comes from a part of natural language processing called uh, world knowledge or common sense, which starts out with models of how people think and then tries to add in new words. So we already have a baseline, and that baseline in my case is built over 17 years of crowdsourcing. Um, and, you know, the baseline from that point you know, just helps us be able to understand things that, you know, maybe we don't say because we think it would be boring if we said it, especially in a world where Twitter is like 140 characters. No one's ever going to tell you that cats are supposed to be cute. You yeah, yeah. You know yeah. that when you come in. Yeah, you have to know that you yourself. You have to know that so, coming in because nobody, so, nobody, nobody's going to get retweeted by saying that, so. Huh, so, so even, even in these deep learning systems, there's some degree of a bedrock potentially in terms of, you know, um, 
So it almost sounds like a bit of a mirror to that lexical. Well, kind of they're called knowledge graphs, and you might have heard okay. of the Google knowledge graph. Yes, for sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they're a little bit different because they're a lot more disorganized. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think that's that's probably the, the best way of putting it. It's it's like it's a giant graph where some things are kind of connected to some other things, and most of the connections aren't there when they should be, and all kinds of other things like that. So it's a lot more sort of you can automatically create them as well. Uh, but a lot of these deep learning systems are also just looking at more data. You know, if you look at Google's data um, or Stuffer's data, they, they're they using something for, called the common crawl to train on, which is the entirety of the Internet in English, um, which is a lot of data. And the problem for business and the reason why this didn't get adopted for business right off the bat is because not even Southwest, not <laughs> certainly not yeah, Southwest, yeah, yeah. none of these people have an Internet-sized no. repository of their customers talking so it became very difficult and so that's why you need to fall back on something like the these these sort of knowledge graph type models to be able to put these things in because otherwise you wouldn't be able to specialize to your domain huh oh okay so so even in a, in a deep or ankle deep learning environment ankle yeah that's going to be catchy i'll probably say that a bunch of times <laughs> i'll try to i'll try to credit you when i do Catherine. uh it is uh, i like the term um it is even even starting from scratch there, oftentimes there's some degree of knowledge graph, some degree of scaffolding, to try to use another analogy, um, that we, we kick things off with, and then the connections are sort of spidered um, Increasingly from there. so, yeah. I think that's something, that's, you know, that's something that we've been doing for a long time at Luminoso, but it's something that's really catching on other places cool. as well. As an approach. <laughs> All right. So my last question, Catherine, obviously you're, you're in business here with Luminoso, and there's a lot of folks that we've had on the show who also are applying machine learning in some way, shape, or form to different industries um, or, or potentially just broad applications in general, um, you, you, you have to do the vigilant thinking here about what the business ROI is. I know your company, Luminoso, you guys are making sense of um, customer feedback and sentiment from all sorts of different kinds of information where that could be sort of pooled together. What are, you know, we don't have to name company names, but but what are some tangible yields here from getting NLP right? We could even use something in the feedback domain that you have. How, how can this kind of machine learning approach um, be leveraged fruitfully like in, in an industrial environment? Yeah, I think one of the things that's also changed on the business, uh, from business and not from AI is that with all of the web and with all of, all of you know, the live chat, um, texting, et cetera, people expect to be able to talk to a brand and have the brand hear them. And whether that brand is my phone is, you know, my cell phone network is down or this plan is no longer working for me all the way down to, I love my iPhone, you know, people expect to have that kind of connection and they reach out and they create more data than ever before. And I think one of the things is, and this is not just social, this is into a contact center, you know, into the old places where you used to just have people call in and ask questions about the ingredients and things like that. It's it's changing. One, people expect to find information online and not have to contact you, so they're pretty cranky when they do. And, you know, two, like, the there's many, many more ways that people feel the need to reach out and ask a question to a company. And so all of these feedback, all of these questions, things like that, being able to understand what's going on, being able to pull it down by region, being able to say look, something is happening that you might want to pay attention to in Colorado. You know, this looks like it might be a supply chain problem. All of those things. And it's a very dynamic, it's a very adaptable environment, and it's a lot of different language signals coming in, and there's no way a human being can consume all that data. So 
that's what has to happen is the computer has to read all of it for you and say, look, you know, the differences between the folks who are calling in and have problems with their phone, and we do a lot of consumer electronics, so problems with their phone in, in China um, are having a different sort of problem than people in California. Uh, also, you know that app you just released, it doesn't work on certain versions of Android because of this kind of crash. Um, and perhaps somebody needs to deal with that. And being able to see all of that or say, you know, the post-call satisfaction surveys you've gotten, uh, what's driving people to, you know, be very dissatisfied? Is there a thing they said on that phone call that mm. means that you know that they're going to come away unhappy? Got it. Okay, okay. So we can look at, um, and of course, there's other sort of it, yeah, but, insight gleaning processes here that are their own nut to crack. But basically, like, let me see if I if I can put this in a nutshell from what you're you're saying. We can't tag and flag every conceivable concern that comes in from the phone, and then and then have somebody look at that in real time and then correlate it, you know, by hand to how satisfied they were when they got off the phone. But but it might be possible to determine that this string of words uh, or this, this topic. kind. Yeah, this topic in general, broadly, right? And that's a meaning-making problem, isn't yep. it? Understanding what a topic is, like, yep. oh, co connectivity in the Northeast, by and large, uh, a bigger call center issue than it is normally. Semantically, you know, the topics around connectivity in the Northeast, you know, 30% higher than they were, you know, in most of our months in the last 12 months. You know, okay, well, that's now meaningful, but, but that's a, a real problem of of making meaning. And it's so meaning. Absolutely. It, it sounds like in the back end, Catherine, you know, your uh, product or, or other folks that are aiming to sort of solve this problem yeah. um, has to then be able to file this stuff in ways that humans could make sense of it, right? File it under words that humans can identify. Absolutely. And it's not just that, it's finding that finding the trends uh, because people use spectacularly different language to describe the same problem, um, mm. you know, and... If there was a condensate, there was a, we were working with an like auto manufacturer and they end up with a condensation problem in their car uh, in certain models uh, due to a loose hose in some places. And people would call their dealership with the most amazing customer feedback complaints about smells. Uh, you know, it smells like um, my grandmother's <laughs> house. It smells like I left the dog in the car. Um, oh, <laughs> being able to wow. say, like you and I would be able to say, look, these people are clearly having the same odd smell but they, <laughs> but they're all quite upset about it and so they called and they had some very interesting complaints you know things wow happen. yeah that is funny you, you know i always like a good quote from any given interview Catherine. i like i like a good a good one-liner um and uh people use spectacularly different words to describe the same problem is, yeah. a, is a very is a very nice way to sum up yeah uh, potentially some of the issues with rule-based and some of the reasons that if we could make sense on a meaning level, you know, at a higher level of abstraction, um, wouldn't that connect a lot more dots sometimes? So I think that, that that certainly connected the dots in my head. And so I appreciate the analogy. And hopefully this shed a little bit of light on where the business case is here. I think, you know, you're also bringing up a general trend, which fortunately for your company and many of the other folks that we have on board is not going away, which is to say uh, we're making and keeping a whole lot more data and information, and we're all getting more used to uh, creating so much more, right? Everybody thinks they can, you can message Best Buy when your camera doesn't work, and, you know, maybe they're going to give you some kind of a refund code right then and there and solve your issue, and you're just used to doing that rather than sitting on the phone for 20 minutes, and now that's creating 
all that much more ease of, of transference of that much information and making sense of that, it sounds like is the, the problem you're aiming to crack. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, got it. Well, that, that connected some dots in my head. Catherine, I know we're just about on time here. I am glad that you got to share your insights here on Tech Emergence. Thank you for being our guest. All right, thank you for having me. That was fun. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well. So be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.